smashing. Give everyone the best possible start to the day. See special packs for details. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about the user experience around converting site visitors into customers. Can our selling techniques leave customers feeling cheated? We talked to conversion optimization specialist Paul Boag to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In Implementing Infinite Scroll and Image Lazy Loading in React, Chidiorgi helps us learn how to use the HTML Intersection Observer API to implement infinite scrolling and image lazy loading in React functional components. In the process, we'll learn how to use some of React's hooks and how to create custom hooks. Suzanne Skacker dives into usability testing in the article How Indigo.Design Usability Testing Takes the Guesswork Out of Web Design. Are the pathways you've designed for users intuitive enough? Suzanne posits that it's all really just a guessing game unless you start getting user feedback early on. Find out how Indigo.Design has a usability testing solution to help us out. In this first part asking how should designers learn to code, Paul Hanaoka takes a look at the terminal and text editors. Aiming to help designers who perhaps have struggled to apply techniques learned in online coding courses to their day-to-day work, Paul takes a look at getting comfortable with the command line and text editors. In A Practical Overview of CSS Houdini, Adrian Becky demonstrates how front-end developers will be able to extend CSS with new features using JavaScript, hook into CSS rendering engines, and tell the browser how to apply CSS during a render process. Adrian takes a look at each part of Houdini, its current browser support, and explores how it can be put into practice today using progressive enhancement. And Christopher Giltvet Selbeck writes about creating sortable tables with React. Making your tables sortable in React might sound like a daunting task, but it doesn't have to be too difficult. In this article, Christopher implements all you need to sort out all of your table sorting needs. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's a user experience consultant, digital transformation expert, and conversion rate optimization specialist hailing from the southwest of the UK. He's the author of many books, including User Experience Revolution from Smashing Magazine, and the forthcoming title, Click, How to Encourage Clicks Without Shady Tricks. He's also a veteran web design podcaster with a show running more or less weekly for 15 years. So we know he's an expert in user experience design, but did you know he's also the world authority on papier-mâché? My smashing friends, please welcome Paul Boak. Hi, Paul. How are you? Oh, I'm smashing, apparently. So we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah, and you've just made me say I'm feeling smashing in the middle <laughs> of a in the middle of a pandemic. That's great. Thanks. <laughs> so what I want to know is um what's on your shopping list? <laughs> Oh dear. Do you know this this pandemic has changed very little in my life, right? Yeah. Social distancing 
I've been doing that for, for 18 years. I've worked from home for 18 years. We homeschooled our son. My wife works from home. Nothing has changed in my life. In fact, if anything, I'm now more sociable because everybody's creating these WhatsApp groups and things where, oh, let's all pull together as a community. So I'm having to talk to people now. It's just dreadful, dreadful, <laughs> dreadful time. Oh, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you what's on my shopping list. Oh, yeah. It's uh, a new book of yours. Oh, oh, that was that was smooth, Drew. I'm super <laughs> impressed by that. So, I mean, it, it's a heck of a title: "How to Encourage Clicks Without Shady Tricks." Mm. Um, tell me about that. Well, that wasn't the original title that I wanted. Do you know this story? No, I don't know this story. Oh, okay. I got vetoed by Vitaly. Oh dear, because I wanted to call it encouraging uh, encouraging clicks without being a. But apparently, <laughs> apparently that's not professional enough. So, so the basis of the book is um, that we, we all need to improve our conversion rate. You know, websites aren't there. I mean, although we talk about being user centric and user focused and all those things are entirely correct. But at the end of the day, um, websites have to create a return on investment for whoever owns them. And that's entirely understandable and as it should be. Um, but increasingly, people are under enormous pressure to, to improve their conversion rates. Marketers have got targets they've got to meet. Designers are under pressure. And part of the problem is, is that, you know, in the early days when your website is rubbish, it was easy to increase your conversion rate. And so as a result, then that set expectations because the conversion rate went up quite a lot every year. And so management end up expecting that to happen over the long term. And of course, it becomes harder and harder. So the result is, is that people inevitably are turning to dark patterns, not because necessarily they want to, but because they're under pressure to, they're under pressure to bring about results. So the premise of this book is, first of all, to explain why dark patterns are a bad idea and not from an ethical point of view. Um, I don't feel I'm the kind of person that can preach on ethics, um, but I talk, I talk about it from a purely business point of view that look, these are, these are the business reasons why dark patterns are ultimately damaging. And then that inevitably leads to the question, uh, the question of, well, if dark patterns aren't the answer, then what is? And that's what the majority of the book is, is exploring that, what you can do to, to improve your conversion rate without resorting to these kinds of more manipulative techniques. So it's, I've actually got really excited about this book. It's, it's been one of the most enjoyable ones to write. And I actually think is probably the most practical and tangible book for the biggest majority of people out of the ones that I've written. So in a previous episode of this podcast, I talked to Michael and Trina about their book on ethical design, yes. uh, also from, from Smashing Magazine. Yeah. I guess that makes your book a, a, a good complement to, to that mm. book, if they're yes. looking at the, at the ethics of it, and maybe your, uh, your approach is slightly more from the practical and business sort of side um, Absolutely. just the ethics. Yeah. And I was quite chuffed when I found out that my book would be following on from theirs. Um, I felt that that was a, a really good um, relationship between the two, because, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I think 
the ethics of of how we design online and the decisions that we make and those kinds of things is massively important, you know. And I think we're in a very dangerous time in terms of that kind of thing with many of the decisions that are being made, especially by larger organisations. But it is just not that's not an area that that I'm an expert in or that that um, I feel I can comment on. But what I am seeing is is significant long-term consequences of adopting these more manipulative techniques because i think there's a perception that users are unaware that they're being manipulated because these techniques work people go oh okay therefore people aren't aware that we're manipulating them so everything's fine the truth is very different from that those things uh, the, the these forms of manipulation are happening on a subconscious level yes and they work because they're subconscious, but people are still consciously aware of it. If you, I mean, I've done a lot of usability testing on things like hotel booking sites, which are you know well known for this kind of thing. Um, and and the truth is, people will go, "Oh, I hate all this manipulative crap," right? But then they're still influenced by it. Just so so it's the it's the impact of that that kind of. The fact that people are aware of it. And then also it's got a lot of hidden costs associated with it. You know, you tend to see higher returns. You tend to see more uh, contacting of support and those kinds of things. And a lot of organizations are not joined up enough to to realize that that kind of thing is happening because of these dark patterns. I guess it's a bit like going to a, a theme park and, and buying lunch there. You know that you're being way overcharged, um, but you you want your lunch at the theme park. And so you kind of... you. You, it, it leaves not literally a bad taste in your mouth, hopefully, but there's a there's a bit of um, that regret there that you know that you're being shafted, but you go along with it all the same. But you might not be keen to return next time you're budgeting your holidays. Absolutely. But then there's also the element of buyer's remorse um, that, you know, a lot of time if you bounce someone into you can bounce people into doing pretty much anything you want. Right. Um, and And that's fine take out ethics for a minute. <laughs> All right. But, you know, you could argue, but well, that's fine from a business point of view. But what you end up with is a is a an audience of customers who who are suffering from buyer's remorse. And buyer's remorse is extremely dangerous because that's what leads people to complain online. That's what pe- leads people to to um, uh, to to return items and all of those kinds of things. So so it's incredibly important that people are happy with their decision. They're happy with their purchase, and that's really what the book is about. Is is how do you get people to a point as fast as possible where they're happy with their decision, um, without them then afterwards regretting that decision. So say that you've been using some of these perhaps slightly underhanded techniques on your site and you've seen that it's converting well, you're turning visitors into customers uh, quite effectively, but you want to, you know, perhaps you're seeing uh, more returns um, or you're seeing some bad reviews or you're seeing some of the consequences of this buyer's remorse that we were talking about. And you want to try and improve things, get rid of the underhanded techniques and go to more, you know, more ethical or, or more customer friendly ways of converting people. How are you going to know if you're actually having an effect? You Presumably you have to come up with some way of measuring your conversion before you can start making changes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and I think, again, this is something that, that many organisations are quite poor at, is, is being clear about um, how they're going to measure success. Now, 
Yes, your conversion rate is one metric you should absolutely uh, be following. But even with conversion, you kind of need to be a little bit more sophisticated than how many people are buying. Um, You also need to pay attention to average order value. You need to pay, uh, pay particular attention to lifetime value. Right. So how much a, a customer's worth over their entire life? Because you may well find that you're getting quite a high churn of customers if you're using dark patterns and things like that. But really, conversion should be just one of the metrics that you're measuring. There's also um, things like you need to be paying attention to engagement, how engaged are people with your with your content, because that that makes uh, a big difference in whether they eventually go on to convert. So you're looking at things like, you know, how much of your videos do they watch? You know, how long do they spend on your um, site and what are they looking at while they're doing it? Uh, are they engaging on social media and those kinds of things? And then the final aspect is obviously usability that you need to be measuring how quickly someone can complete a, a particular task on their website and, you know, um, how easy they find the, the, the system to use and various other different criteria. And there are loads of mechanisms that you can use for measuring those different things. There's some great tools out there um, and also some good, like, um, uh, metrics, you know, that you can adopt. So for example, with usability, there's something called the system usability scale, um, which can be a very useful uh, metric to measure. But equally, there are tools like maze.design is one that, that I often use, which will measure how long it's taking someone to make a purchase, for example, and get through the checkout. Um, so, so yeah, having that kind of broad range of metrics, so you're not just focusing on how many sales did we make this quarter. Um, you've got to look at the bigger picture. Are there any dangers that you could end up measuring the wrong thing? Yes, yes, absolutely. And so uh, as a result, I think any metric that you're looking at, um, well, that's why you really need a range of metrics, right? The more, you know, if you just focus in on one particular metric, so for example, a lot of uh, marketing professionals are are judged on the number of leads that they've generated in a particular quarter or whatever. If you just have one metric like that, then it's going to A, skew the reality of what's going on, but B, it's going to end up encouraging some less than perfect behavior. So let me give you an example. I worked with um, a, a project, uh, a company that produces project management software, right? And um, they had a marketing department and they had a sales department. And the marketing department was um, uh, tasked with generating leads. That was their job, right? They had to generate as many leads as possible. The sales department were judged and assessed on how many leads they converted, okay? Now, the website was owned by the marketing department. So the marketing department came to the conclusion that it was a really good idea to the product demo that they had on the website. They were going to make people register before they could see the product demo. Okay, because that would generate a large number of emails and a large number of leads to help them meet their target. Sure enough, it did. It generated a huge number of, of leads as, you know, a lot of people didn't just gave up and went away, but many people did actually sign up and um, to see the demo. Now, the problem that that created is the majority of those leads weren't good quality leads. They were people that were nowhere near the point of being ready to talk to a salesperson. And so when the salesperson contacted them, 
they weren't interested. They didn't want to talk to them. But the salesperson had already wasted the time and the effort in calling them. And then they also had to filter through all the people that had entered Donald Duck at Disney as their email address. So actually, they created an inter- a huge amount of internal work for the sales team. And the sales team conversion rate plummeted through the floor because they had all these poor quality leads. So that's a great example of how things can go wrong if your metrics are are too narrow and too skewed in a particular direction. And I guess a lot of it comes down to understanding who the user is. Mm. Um, In order to turn somebody into a a customer, you need to understand who they are and I guess so much about user experience design is is effectively putting yourself in the place of your user and empathizing mm-hmm. with what they're what they're trying to do. So how how do we go about understanding who our user is? Well, I mean there there are again there are lots of different ways of doing that um depending on your time and your budget and things like that. Um I mean I'm a great believer in in actually meeting with users right um i think there is a bit of a tendency at the moment towards oh well, we've got all these wonderful analytics and survey tools and that kind of thing and and sure enough those are great you know i'm not in any way knocking them but but if you're trying to convince somebody to take action you as you say you re- need to empathize with them and knowing that somebody has 2.3 children works in the city and you know i don't know spends their weekends kayaking doesn't really help you to know and empathize them as with them as people so so personally i'm a much bigger fan of actually speaking to people and doing user interviews even if they're over the phone um, or remotely which they kind of have to be at the moment um you know, they're very much worthwhile in terms of getting to know people. Now, that said, I think another thing that that I love to do and just kind of blows you away, and you can't do that this at the moment, but hopefully you will be able to soon, which is you go and visit people in their homes, right? Now, the reason that I find this so valuable is because you find out about the reality of their experience in a way that you would never get from just um, uh, talking to them over over the phone or from a survey. Now, I'm not saying you need to do this a lot. Probably doing it once is enough. But essentially, I mean, let me give you an example. Um, I was once um, uh, testing an e-commerce site, and so I decided to visit visit some people in their home and actually test the site with them in their own home. So I went to visit this um, one lady and she opened the door and immediately all these cats came out and kind of curled around my legs and disappeared off. And she was a stereotypical cat lady. I'm sorry to be rude, but she really was. Every surface in the house was covered with knickknacks and, and ornaments relating to cats in some way. There were pictures of cats on the wall. They ha- she had a total of nine cats, right, which is just insane. So we talked for a while and we sat down to use this um, to test with this website. And we used her computer, which I tell you, took 10 minutes to boot up because it was this old kind of, you know, tower computer. It was an absolute nightmare. And our whole desk was covered with clutter and knickknacks and things. And she had post-it notes all around her screen. Now, the minute she sat down in front of that computer, a cat jumped on her lap. So she spent the rest of that usability session trying to juggle a cat that was on her lap the cat got so fed up at one point that it wasn't getting enough tension that it decided to crawl across the the keyboard and sit (laughs) on the keyboard right which i know you understand because
because you've got a cat and I've seen pictures of your cat doing the same thing. I feel seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, and then on top of which we, I asked her at one point, Oh, add your, um, add a product to the basket, which she was able to do. And then I said, well, now go to the basket. And I realized there's no way she's going to find the basket because she had a post-it note stuck on the screen over the top of the basket. Now that is the real world experience, right? That's what you, we sit down and I look at our websites and we think they're so easy to use and so simple. But if you're juggling with a cat and if you're living in chaos or you've got distractions and that kind of stuff, then, you know, you don't have that kind of clean, clear mental you know, point of view to approach the website. You are under what is called cognitive load. So I guess one solution to that might be for every design studio to be equipped with cats. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and not only that, but but uh, equipped with shitty computers, right? Because <laughs> we all sit, don't we? Yeah, I'm doing it right now. I'm sitting in front of a lovely iMac with this gorgeous screen. And that's not what most people like. I remember another occasion I was designing a website for, for an elderly audience, right? Well, I say I was designing it. I was kind of, you know, doing the UX side of things. And I was getting quite frustrated with the designer because the designer was a young guy and it, he, he, he did these beautiful interfaces that was all subtle and lovely and, you know, gorgeous. And I was saying, I'm sorry, but this old audience are not going to be able to see what you're doing and they're not going to be able to click on all these little links and stuff it you know and you've got to make it more brash and horrible you know which obviously he didn't want to do so I came into the office one day with a pair of reading glasses and a pair of ski gloves right and I made him put on the reading glasses and put on the ski gloves now he didn't need reading glasses just to be clear on that and I said, now use the site. And of course, he couldn't. He couldn't see properly. He had lost motor control in his hands because he had these big, thick ski gloves on. You know, so that helped him to empathize and understand what his audience was uh, was going through. And so things like that, I think, are really important to do. Um, obviously, that's a bit of an extreme example. It was me making a point and rubbing my designer's nose in it. But you get the idea. I mean, you, you mentioned sort of cognitive load of, uh, of buying. I mean, making purchasing mm. decisions online can be fairly overwhelming at times. Uh, are, are there mm. things that we should be doing that are going to help the customer have a better experience and be more likely to to convert, more likely to actually make a purchasing decision? Yeah. I mean, it's really funny. Cognitive load is is a fascinating thing in terms of how it affects us, right? So what cognitive load is basically is having to think too much. We have two systems in our brain. We have system one and system two. And system one is that, that kind of unconscious decision making that we make all of the time. And system two is our conscious mind. Now, our conscious mind is incredibly powerful, um, but it easily gets overwhelmed. It easily gets tired out. Um, and that's known as cognitive load. And, and when our, we are overwhelmed, when our cognitive load goes up, it has all kinds of really bad impacts on conversion rate, right? So suddenly your website feels hard to use. It feels untrustworthy and a little bit suspicious, um, and it feels just downright bad. So uh, our, our, our conscious minds are very cynical as well. So we start not believing what's being said on the site and it really has an enormous impact. So the way that you lower cognitive load um, is really about simplifying your website, 
right? So removing unnecessary distractions um, uh, that are on the website. It's about um, being consistent in your website. So buttons don't move around, things don't change, but not only consistent within your own website, consistent with people's expectations from websites. So to give you an example of what I mean, um, let's say I asked you to search on a website, all right? Where would you look? You'd look in the top right-hand corner, wouldn't you, right? Everybody looks at the top right-hand corner. So the first thing, they look at the top right-hand corner, then they look for an input field. They enter their search query in the input field and they press the button next to it, right? That is the, that's what's called a procedural knowledge. We have learned that that is a procedure that if we go to a website, look at the top right-hand corner, use the input field, click the button, we will search on that website. But the minute that you break that procedural knowledge, our cognitive load goes up. So at that point, we're starting to go, well, hang on, where's the button? Or why isn't the search field the way it's supposed to look? Or why isn't it in the top right-hand corner? So that kind of consistency with expectations matters a lot. And then our mood matters as well. Bizarrely, you, you know what it's like. If you're, some days you wake up and you're in a really good mood and everything seems to be easier, right? And then other days you wake up in a bad mood, everything seems to be harder. So, so actually, the mood we're in affects our level of cognitive load. So things like design delighters, nice little, you know, friendly copy, all, you know, colourful graphics, all those things, they help as well to put us in a good mood that lowers our cognitive load. So it's really mood, um, inconsistencies in the interface, uh, confusing too much information being displayed. And then finally, priming people. So in other words, setting their expectations about what will happen and why it will happen. I guess all these things sort of weigh into how much trust somebody has in, in the website. Mm. And I, I think trust is is quite a big factor, isn't it? In oh, somebody deciding to actually buy from you. Because, I mean, anyone can put a website online. We all know that. We're we're web people. Um, so, and there are, there are thousands of places that you can buy the same product or service from quite often. So there needs to be mm. some way of, of building up trust. And are there other ways that we can build up trust in a site? Yeah. I mean, trust, you're right. People buy from people they trust and from organizations they trust. So when it comes to trust, a lot of it is about humanity, being a human being, you know how many times you go to a website and it it um, it just feels like it's spouting marketing BS at you. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, I mean, there's a the great example I use in a, a, a book where um, there's um, some some copy on a university website. I think it was the University of Essex website, and basically that copy um, was written in the third person. Right. So it's talking about the reader as students. It was talking about themselves as the University of Essex. Um, and it just felt it lacked any kind of humanity and any um, sense that they they cared about you or liked you. And simply turning that around and writing it in the first person. So talking about we and talking about you. Make, makes an enormous difference in making that kind of connection with people. Other ways that you can do that, obviously, um, is through like things like social proof. You know, you can sh build trust by demonstrating that you're a trustworthy brand. But again, you've got to accept that people are very cynical these days. So it's not a matter of just slapping some logos on your website and going, there's your social proof. 
you know, uh, or slapping a, a text testimonial because people know that some companies just make that they make that stuff up. So one of the things, actually, a product of your own, actually, Perch. I don't think you do this anymore, but for a long time on your website, you used to have testimonials that came straight from Twitter. They were pulled straight out of Twitter. And that was such a good idea because um, those testimonials, people can click through and see that there's a real human being behind it, right? Um, Another example is videos, right? Have you ever watched um, videos, testimonials on websites where the person um, that's speaking, right, is beautifully lit, right, um, has got perfect teeth and, and, and says this, you know, says a whole spiel about how great the company is without pausing, without going um, without making mistakes. They're obviously just reading off a script, right? That's insincere. However, if you have a, a shitty video, right, um, that's phoned on a, filmed on a webcam, that the audio's a bit crap, that's more uh, actually more effective because it's more real. Great example of this is um, there's a guy called Paul Jarvis who sells a, a co- um, an online course called um, uh, Chip, um, Chimp Essentials, which teaches you how to use MailChimp. And if you go to chimpessentials.com, he's got all these video just like, he's obviously just chatting to someone over a webcam and then talking about how great the course was and how much it helped. And that is so powerful because it's authentic, it's real, it's human. You know, it's a, and that's what it's about. It's about coming across as a human being um, and, and making a connection with people. So, yeah, that's I'm a huge fan of that kind of sincerity and openness and honesty. Buffer is another example of that. Right. Um, Buffer, they 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 lay out everything online. You can see how much their employees are paid. You can see how much they earn in the last month. You can see um, what their diversity um, range of staff and employees are. You can see everything about that company. And so, you know, they're not hiding anything. You know that they're being sincere and open, and that goes such a long way. So we understand who our our customer is. Um, we want them to buy from us. Is there a, a single moment when a conversion happens on our site? No, no. Um, conversion is very much a journey, right? Um So it's a series of micro interactions, and I think that's part of the problem that people have is that they they perceive you know oh okay they've clicked on the buy now button you know we're done um or they've signed you know sent us a contact form we're done and actually it's a lot more nuanced than that there are there are many many steps in a journey that someone goes on so let's let's take i don't know donating to charity um for example so, so the, the first interaction might be you um, see an update that a friend shares on social media about some crisis in the world. OK, so your first point of conversion really is just clicking on that link in that social media update. Right. Which takes you to a blog post. And then your second conversion is actually reading that blog post and looking at it. And your third maybe is to sign up for updates about that particular crisis and then maybe you receive um, some emails about it so your next conversion point is actually opening those emails and reading the content 
And then it might be that they, they in those emails, ask you to make a donation. So the next step is to, to make a single donation, you know, a one-time donation. And then they'll follow up with you again. And that might turn into a monthly donation. And then that might lead you to um, actually start uh, volunteering for them or fundraising for them. And eventually it might even lead to you leaving a legacy when you, uh, when you die. So, so actually, any, any point of conversion is just a, a step in an ongoing journey. And we need to start thinking of conversion as a journey of, uh, of relationship with a customer rather than, okay, we've, we've got them to sign on the dotted line, we're done. Because there's so much more potential than just that. So every, every interaction you have with that customer is uh, a, a point where really you're selling with them. I mean, it, it's, it's yeah. always be closing, right? ABC. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It really, yeah. Do you know, I hadn't thought of that. Yes. It's absolutely straight off of that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so um, you've, you've carefully designed a site. You've done your best to ensure that you're going to get some good conversions without any dirty tricks, without anything underhand. Uh, you launch the site is that it? Are you done? No. What, yeah. what, what should we be doing over time? Drew, you're, you're asking questions that I know you know the answers to. And it's that, <laughs> that's a sign of a great interviewer when you're happy to ask questions that, that other people might need the answer to. Now, of course, it is. I mean, you've run, run Perch for years. You know that you can't just kind of start something and then, then walk away from it. When it comes to conversion, really, that initial launching is the very, very beginning of the process. Um, and actually, what is important in the journey is that ongoing optimization, that ongoing monitoring um, and improvements. And interesting, I've literally just written a report for a company, a lot, you know, outlining this approach. So basically, it, it begins, you, you go through like a cycle. And the cycle begins with you try and identify problem areas in your site. So typically, you would look at your analytics, right? And you'd look at pages that have got a high dropout rate for the number of visitors that they have on that to that particular page. So a high percentage of dropouts. So you know that something is going wrong on that page. Um, so that's your first step. Then you try and narrow down, well, what's going wrong on that page? Now, you can either do that through session recorders, um, which gives you allows you to watch back users interacting with that particular page. And you might be able to spot where it's going wrong, perhaps having problems with a form or perhaps they scroll straight past some critical button or something else. Um, alternatively, if that doesn't work, you might want to do some, some remote usability testing. And that's so cheap and easy these days using services like, I don't know, usertesting.com or userbrain. Um, there are all these great services that make it really easy to test those kinds of pages. So that will enable you probably to work out what the problem is. Once you've done that, then the next step is, well, now we need to identify how we're going to fix that problem. Um, and in that particular case, it, it kind of, you can have a couple of different approaches. If the, the, if the problem is relatively easy to fix, so if it's just things like changing imagery or changing button colors or that kind of very simple thing, then probably you want to go straight to A-B testing. Um, so, so you, you know, use something like Google Optimize to, 
to send some of your users to an alternative version of the page with these small changes being made. You see whether that improves things. And if it does, you push it live. If it's more substantial changes, um, then uh, you'll probably want to mock that up or prototype that before you go to all the expense and time of building it properly. Um, and then you can test that either by doing some more usability testing or if it's just like a static mock-up, in other words, it's not, you know, an interactive thing, then you might want to do something like um, a first click test where you say, okay, where would you click on this mock-up in order to, you know, complete X task and see whether people are clicking in the right place. Or another test that you can do is something called a five second test where you show them the mock-up for five seconds, take it away and you ask them, what they recalled. And that's a really good way for ascertaining whether or not they spotted that call to action they previously scrolled straight past, you know? So you have to use a bit of imagination, but basically you then test your your hypothesis, if you like, about how to fix it. Presuming you're right, you then roll it out. Now you're not at the end of the process then, right? Because you now go back to the beginning again. You look at, well, what's the next page that people are most exiting the site from? And you repeat the process and you just keep doing that really for forever, you know, slowly and incrementally improving your conversion rate over time. This all sounds very uh, logical, very attractive to somebody who, uh, like me, who's a, a business owner and I've got a digital product. And I think, yes, I could be doing this. Mm. Some of the listeners would be freelancers working on an hourly rate for a, yeah. a customer who has these sorts of problems. And I can see it might be difficult to convince that customer that this is what they should be doing. This is something mm. they should invest in because mm. all the time spent in even just setting up some some monitoring and setting up something to measure um, conversion is, is, is money that that client is going to have to pay out for the designer to do mm. it. What would you say to those designers? Is there a, uh, an effective way they can persuade their client that this is what they should be doing? Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is a tricky one because it's very hard to to persuade anybody of anything, uh, in my opinion. Um, you, people become very entrenched in their, their ways of thinking. But there will be, it's worth finding out what they care about because there will be certain metrics that they want to move, right? It might be they want more leads. It might be they want more quality leads. It might be that they want, um, you know, to, to reduce their cost of sale. It might, whatever it is. And then you start talking about these kinds of optimization techniques in that context. That said, um, you're never going to get someone to commit to, you know, a major program of, you know, incremental design and usability testing and all those things in one go, right? What, what I would start with is just trying to encourage them to go through that cycle once, right? You pick the, you then, so, so you might be that you even have to install the analytics on your dime, you know, but it's not a big deal, is it, to you, to add something like Google Analytics or something like Hotjar for session recorders. Um, so, so you, you basically then just take them through it once. You say, okay, well, let's give it a go for one time. Let's see if we can make a difference to the conversion rate by looking at the analytics, by mocking up one, uh, one thing and just improving that one thing. If that works, you rinse and repeat. You know, they don't necessarily need to commit to an ongoing retainer where you're continually optimizing it. This could be done as a series of sprints, effectively doing, you know, going through the loop one thing at a time. 
Um, in terms of kind of more general uh, stuff, like, um, for example, just simplifying the interface, uh, then in those kinds of cases, often it's a matter of um, actually showing them what better might look like. Now, uh, I'm I'm afraid to even say this in front of you, Drew, because I remember many, many years ago, um, uh, oh, no, it wasn't you, actually. I was about to say that it was you I remember going on about speculative design, but it wasn't. You were yeah, you're off the hook. It was you talk, ranting about the fold. That was the thing that I'm remembering. Um, anyway, that's beside the point. So one of the things you can do there is actually try, you know, um, for the first time. I'm not saying do this regularly, but if you've got an existing client and you're seeing glaring problems, mock up uh, an alternative version of doing a particular page and then do those five second tests that I mentioned or do a um, uh, what was the other one? A first click test and see whether those can make improvements and show that evidence to the client. Um, so you can use a tool like usabilityhub.com that will allow you to do those tests really easily. Um, if that, you know, if you don't want to do that, then because you don't want to put the effort of, of mocking those things up. The other thing that you can do is, um, just do some record a few videos of people using the website right and and then edit down all of the bits of them moaning and complaining about how crap the site is to use into a two minute horror reel and and send it to the client you know that can do it as well so would these generally be would these be the tips you'd give for somebody who was just wanting to get some quick wins to to start they've done no optimization and they just want to get started are these the same sort of things that they do mm. for a quick win Yeah I mean to some extent often I find where I start you know if I get a new client um and I I I'll normally the thing I normally start with is simplifying the user interface um because inevitably sites end up bloated with a load of things that don't really really help so the way that i tend to do it is i'll, I'll take a particular page you know let's say a home page for example and i will systematically look at every single element on that page right um and i will ask myself one of th uh, three questions in order question number one that i ask is um could I remove this element? If I remove this element, what would be the negative con uh, consequences of doing so, right? So you'll be amazed at how much you can just strip out of a website. Um, and of course, every element that's on the screen is every element a user is having to process and look at. Every element adds to their cognitive load. So anything you can remove, great. Then if you can't remove an element because it's critical to the completion of a key task or convincing users to take action or whatever else, then the next question you ask yourself is, can I hide this element? Could I move it deeper in the information architecture? Could I put it under a tab? Could I put it under an accordion? Whatever else, just to get it out of the site for the majority of people. Um, so that often helps. And then if the answer is, well, this really is absolutely critical. Um, uh, so, you know, I don't know, give you an example. Maybe you're, you're forced to have um, some compliance copy on your website. You know, that happens. I get that a lot with my bigger clients. Oh, yes. Legal department says we have to have this. So my third option, my final option is, can I visually shrink this? So can I de-emphasize it, you know, put it, 
in the footer or, um, you know, make it smaller or, you know, make it lighter text, you know, anything to draw attention away from that and focus it on stuff that really matters. So that's almost always my first starting point with any kind of conversion is just to simplify everything. Um, the other thing that I do alongside that, um, which is a really useful starting point, is something called objection handling. So I will make a list of as many reasons that someone might choose not to act as possible. Right. Um, uh, and I then make sure that those are all addressed clearly on the website because often they're not. Um, so a classic example of that might be somebody comes to sign up for a newsletter, right? Now you think when you sign up to a newsletter, all these things go through your head. Are they going to sell my email address? Are they going to spam me? Is the content going to be relevant? Can I unsubscribe in one click? You know, all of these objections, right? Um, are you addressing those, right? And not only are you addressing them, but are you addressing them at the point that you want people to convert? So for example, yes, you probably say something about whether you're going to sell their email address or whether you're, you know, um, how much you're going to email them and stuff. That will be in your privacy policy. But that's going to be buried in a completely different part of the site where no one ever looks. And to be honest, it's all illegible anyway, because it's written in legalese. Right. So so answering people's questions at the point they have them is also another really good starting point for just giving your conversion rate that little boost. That's fantastic. I think all these um, all these tips uh, are things that you go into in in quite a lot of depth in the book. Mm -hmm. But I found it to be a really great read. I've enjoyed um, browsing through it so far. I know it's uh, in the late stages of production, and it's coming out from Smashing Magazine this spring, twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. so that's um, click how to encourage clicks without shady tricks. Um, and you can find out more about the book if you go to encouragingclicks.com. And then when it's released, you can go to smashingmagazine.com slash books and you'll be able to find it and buy it from there. Now, Paul, I guess if people are listening to this, I presume that they like podcasts. <laughs> um, you've been podcasting for, I guess, almost 15 years now. Yeah. Yeah. So we were the first web design podcast in the world. That's my claim to fame. <laughs> there we go. I mean, if, if the listener hasn't come across a Boag World podcast, what sort of thing could they expect from it? <laughs> um, nonsense, generally. <laughs> um, no, it's a, it, it's, it's a season-based show that kind of covers all aspects of web design in a pretty broad sense. We don't do a lot on development, to be honest. So it's mainly kind of design, project management, content creation, you know, all of those kinds of things. A lot of UX stuff, because that's my my personal passion. Um, it's quite a laid back kind of conversational show. Um, uh, we have seasons and different seasons are on different topics. So, for example, there's a whole season dedicated to conversion rate optimization. If people want to learn more about that as a as a subject area, so you can kind of pick and choose which seasons you listen to. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a huge amount more to say about it. The current season has been uh, one about uh, almost like a virtual meetup where we're having, ch you know, uh, conversations with with just people listening to the show. So you can come in along and join in. But next season will be something totally different. So it's a bit of an eclectic mix, to be honest. I've uh, listened to it on and off uh, for a good uh, number of those 15 years, and it's always an enjoyable listen. So I would uh, recommend that people check it out if they haven't done so already. Um, so I've been learning from you about honest ways to convert users into customers. Um, what have you been learning about that, people? 
Um, I've been getting slowly more and more obsessed with psychology um, because obviously that relates quite a lot to to both user experience design and conversion rate optimization. Um, so I've been realizing how little I know about psychology. Um, so it started off very um, simply by um, following a guy called Joe Leach, um, who's written a free book that you can download called Psychology for Designers. Um, so that got me thinking more about psychology and understanding how to approach the subject. And then I've started to read you know, proper psychology books now. If I'm, I've, I feel like I'm a bit more of a grown up in the field. So, um, for uh, for example, earlier I was talking about System One and System Two that comes from a book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Um, that I would highly recommend. It's a bit of a stodgy read at places. You know, it's not the, the easiest book to to read, but is very very much applicable to the kind of world that we're looking at. So a lot of a lot about psychology. I'm also I'm always kind of nosing into things like marketing and sales as well because I'm quite interested of how people apply sales techniques offline so all that stuff I was talking about like uh, when I talked about objection handling that comes from traditional sales basically so so yeah those are the two big areas at the minute if you dear listener would like to hear more from Paul you can follow him on Twitter where he's at Boagworld or find his podcast, blog, and details of how you can hire him to consult on your digital projects at boagworld.com. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Do you have any parting words? Keep safe, I guess, at the moment. That's the sad thing that you're having to say, isn't it? And um, yeah, just start experimenting uh, with conversion rate optimization. You'll be amazed at the results you see. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at smashingmag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Oh, oh, oh.